Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Ladies, hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. Victor Davis Hanson is the star and namesake. He is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor's back from a little little trip uh, straight from the airport to the microphone, justthenews.com. That's our happy home on the internet. As ever, a lot to talk about. Victor, little dicey here. I'd like us to begin talking about or me asking you about you addressing the issue of Jimmy Carter, who, as we speak, is in hospice. Uh, he will, as we all will pass away, but he is expected to pass away soon. I don't know if it's days or weeks, but there's been a lot of outpouring over overwrought praise of of this man. And Victor, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. And um, Raul Dahl, the the uh, revising of his children's books and many other subjects. And we'll we'll get to that right after these important messages. Across America, BP supports more than two hundred and seventy five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. 
your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, I'd like to springboard off of uh, a piece of writing by Andy Ferguson, my old colleague uh, at National Review, long, long time ago. Andy's just one of the best writers out there. He used to have uh, he used to be a regular writer for, for many years for the Weekly Standard before it went under. I don't know if you you may, you may know Andy or not, Victor. I'm yes, not sure, I know Andy. I, I like Andy a lot. Oh, he's just a good man. Yeah. So here's what he wrote the other day for Washington Free Beacon, and it's about Jimmy Carter. And uh, bear with me, and then Victor, give you if you give your thoughts. He writes: We human beings often react this way when we catch ourselves doing something that's in poor taste or otherwise undignified. We break wind in a reception line. We tell a dirty joke with an earshot of a toddler, and then, and in our mortification, we turn on the motor mouth, hovering ghoulishly over the deathbed of a celebrated stranger for endless days as members of our nation's press corps are doing, waiting for him to hurry up and croak already and wandering in the streets of his tiny hometown to find a resident who hadn't yet been interviewed half a dozen times by the BBC is one of those circumstances of cringing self-embarrassment. So we blather, we talk balls, we say anything to fill the silence that might call attention to the shabbiness of what we're doing. We say things like, oh, I don't know, like Jimmy Carter moves humanity forward every single day, or maybe that he had the sweetest and best parts of our character. We might even describe Jimmy Carter as probably the most intelligent, hardworking, and decent man to have occupied the Oval Office in the 20th century, end quote. Victor, personally, I'm sure Jimmy Carter is a nice guy, whatever. But I think he was a terrible president. I think he was a terrible ex-president. I think he facilitated a lot of anti-Semitic talk over over the years in his ex-presidency. But he's being lauded as one of the greatest Americans of all time as he's dying. Victor, your thoughts, please. Well, he personally, he he led an exemplary life. He was long married to to one woman. He worked for Habitat for Humanity. Remember those pictures of him with his blue work shirt and hammering away and and you know he said he'd never lie to us and when he did lust he only lusted in his heart he told us about pretty women so i mean but that aside he did some things uh well if you go to his presidency no matter what he says it was an utter failure he managed he gave us stagflation that idea of high inflation and uh negative or almost flat economic growth. We had the energy crisis under him again. We had uh, high, oh my gosh, high interest rates and nothing worked. And then we had the Middle East problem where the Camp David Accords was sort of okay. It didn't solve the problem. But from then on, he favored the Arab nations and detested Israel. So he couldn't stand Menachem Begin. And he let that be known. And then the Carter Center that he raised with a lot of Middle East money, he, he said that Israel, as I recall, was an apartheid state, which it isn't. And if you don't believe if that, go to Israel and go up by the Sea of Galilee and see how the Arab citizens of Israel live and elect people to the Knesset with uh they made they made a prime minister and before Netanyahu in the last 
the election before last, that party, the Arab party. So, and you compare that to the way uh, blacks were treated in South Africa, and that's a travesty to even make that comparison. Uh, so his presidency was failed. He said he had an inordinate fear of communism. And when he came over, came into power, he was going to stop the Cold War rhetoric. He threatened to bring all the troops home from South Korea, et cetera. And it didn't take long uh, that the Russians went into Afghanistan in 1980 and we had the Iranian hostages. And of course, they let them go um on the last day of his, I mean, they kept them until the first day of Donald Reagan's presence. He, being sort of a narcissist, felt that it was directed to punish him. It really wasn't. That might have been a side benefit for the theocracy, but it was really because they were in utter fear of Ronald Reagan, because they knew he would do something differently than, than did Jimmy Carter, which was nothing. And then uh, he had a, a mean streak in him. Remember, he said he was going to kick Ted Kennedy's ass. And he had this bad habit of presidents, both Democratic and Republican. Remember Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, the, that 16 years, he couldn't be out of the limelight. He had to show everybody that he was moral and he was mm-hmm. upright and he was sanctimonious and self-righteous. And he had a great presidency and you didn't believe it. So he was going to be a citizen. He was the first globalist that right. uh, of the modern era. And he toured the company, but he had this propensity that whenever a particular president, he didn't like Bill Clinton any more than he did George W. Bush. And by the way, he said, we talk about election denialists. He said that uh, Donald Trump was illegitimate. Right. Everybody remember that. And I'll say it again. He said he was an illegitimate president in 2016. And he de- denied the legitimacy of the 2016. And he bought into the Russian collusion, which was a very amoral thing to do. There was no evidence for it other than the venom that he held for Trump. But then the point is that when you have these presidents, and I'm just mentioning this because the left always talks about the Logan Act, the the ossified, inert 18th century law that's never successfully prosecuted anybody, but they used it against Michael Flynn. But he, he, if there is such a thing, he violated uh, as a private citizen because every time Bill Clinton wanted to do anything with North Korea, he went over to North Korea. And started to do his own diplomacy. Right. We had the problems with Iran. He went over to Iran. And when George W. Bush, I can remember when it was Katrina, he was down there to, uh, attacking the president of the United States for his handling of Katrina. So what he did in his post-presidency was to set himself off against the current president and said, these are politicians. These are people who believe in real. I am a moralist and I'm going to be a citizen of the world and above all that. But he sure didn't do that as president. He he was very concerned. Uh, he was very concerned about his reputation himself, but he was a micromanager. So he ended up not being able to get any economic policy that would stop inflation or encourage economic growth. He did deregulate the airlines, which was great for a while, but I just got off a flight and it looked like a zoo on that flight, I can tell you. And (laughs) and at the airports, it just looks, I mean, I'm not sure that that was such a good thing uh, in retrospect, but he, uh, he was a failure in foreign policy. He was a failure on the domestic front. 
Uh, Are you I, talking about Joe Biden or, or Jimmy uh, Carter? Well, they're, they're, in all fairness to Jimmy Carter, he was uh, a better man and a better president than Joe Biden. Joe Biden, I think I, you can argue, is the worst president of the 21st and 20th centuries. Worst by far. And the, what's striking about Joe Biden is I, I, I hear this. I turn on the television sometimes and I channel surf to see what the opposition is saying, or I look at oppositional mainstream media and they say things. Well, Joe Biden had a string of accomplishments. He built back better. He he got the inflation. And, well, these were all just borrowed money. Stupid things. They didn't do anything. They were just channeling money for identity politics projects or green projects. or But they, they haven't done anything. He's done nothing. And Joe, and Jimmy Carter, I mean, Joe Biden, Jimmy Carter should thank Joe Biden because right. until Joe Biden came along, he was our worst president. Yeah. And now Joe Biden has inherited that mantle from him. So it's a mixed bag. He was, he was a man of faith. He was a good family man. Uh, he followed the law. He didn't try to cash in and his ex-president too much. He, he raised a lot of money, as I said, for the Middle East for his Carter Center, uh, which is sort of a sinecure for his friends. But compared to that was a misdemeanor to compare to what most ex-presidents do. And look at Barack Obama and Netflix and all of this stuff that he's doing. Yeah. So uh, but. As a politician, as a statesman, as a president, an utter failure, and he had a mean streak in him. Yeah. And that, and that came out with his poorly controlled uh, attacks on Israel. Kind of on Jews, too. Right. I don't know where he got that, but the idea that calling the Israelis uh, synonymous with South Africans was really a low blow. I can't forget well, that. Jimmy- I, I, I just thought that was one of the worst things. He had people who resigned from the Carter Center, but as I recall. Yeah, his reputation for being the the great you know, creator of Middle East peace, which I think is a joke, but maybe one of the many reasons he can't stand Donald Trump. But Donald Trump really was the instigator of yes. Middle East peace. Well, Donald yeah. Trump really did do something that all of his sanctimonious and highfalutin verbiage could not do, bring Israel and the Arabs together. And Donald Trump, being a realist, went to them both and said, look at this Iranian theocracy. I can't figure out whether they hate you, Saudis, or you, Israelis, more. But your enemy of your enemy is your friend. And you've got to settle this thing, and we and you settle it and bind up your wounds, and I will get rid of Barack Obama's insane diplomacy that tried to uh, favor Hezbollah, Hamas, the Assad dynasty, and Iran, and some stupid, you know, Shia crescent from the Mediterranean all the way up to Tehran and, and balance the moderate Arabs and Israelis. And he, and he did jump that. And then, of course, Joe Biden, because he has uh, Obama holdovers, Lincoln, Sultan, all those people, they're resurrecting that Iranian policy, even though Iran, Iran is now firmly in the Russian-Chinese camp. And one of the things, it's just on a tangent, one of the things of the fallout, unfortunately, for from this Ukrainian war, the Stalingrad or Verdun, is we've created, as I said, a new axis of China, Russia, 
North Korea, Iran, Turkey, and probably India. And Iran is in a much, and then of course Biden and Obama dropped uh, the arms restrictions. I think that was in Obama's last year, and and Biden kept that restrict yeah. that easing. So they're selling arms to Russia now. There's no international embargo of their arms market, and they're a big arms uh, country now. They're building a plant in Russia to to manufacture under Russian license, under Iranian license, uh, drones. And then, of course, the same left-wing appeasing attitude has always has consequences. Because you remember, it was it 2000, 2011 when we lost a big drone that went down in Iran, and everybody from Dick Cheney to some, you know, some other people who were Democrats said, "Blow the damn thing up," and he didn't do it. He said that would be too provocative. Obama said, and they took that drone and engineered, reverse engineered it, and suddenly they're a major drone um, producer. And so, yeah, this this carryover of Carter, Clinton, Obama, Biden, it's. It's very predictable about the appeasing nature that, yeah. of, of this mindset. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that the Afghanistan war or the Iraq war were models of conservative diplomacy, but I'm just saying that when these guys get in power, they're therapeutic and, and they're not tragic and our enemies become emboldened and they try to take advantage of us. And then yeah. the correction is very dangerous. And that's where we are today. I mean, that India could be thought of as an, an alliance with China. It's just like. Oh, it is. I mean, yeah. I mean, India is saying, wait a minute. I got the Russians on my left hand and I've got the Chinese on my right. And I've had border disputes. And this is a very dangerous part of the world. And I'm going to get cheap oil from Russia. And I can sell them stuff at three times the price, weapons. And the Chinese are going to give me, we're no longer going to have a, a fight with the Chinese. And I'm not going to get any more, Modi's not going to get any more moral lessons and moral lectures and sermons from the United States about human rights and all of his shortcoming. He said, I'll take it. And so he's taking it. Yeah. And that's the problem with the Obama Biden nexus, you start then the people around them, you start lecturing people how they have to be more moral and more ethical and they've got to respect LGBTQ and fly the flag, the LGBTQT, whatever it is in Kabul, get the George Floyd murals, get the gender studies at the University of Kabul program, culturally imperialistic to the T. And then you wonder why these people think that you're imperialistic. And the left doesn't understand that, that there's nothing, nothing worse than to lecture somebody. And everybody knows that who's listening from your own life. Right. Somebody to lecture you who's weak. And you'd rather deal with somebody who doesn't say a word and is tough right. than someone who's a loud-mouthed, self-righteous sermonizer then doesn't follow through. Just like Obama. If they move, uh, if I get when that they're moving that D WMD around. That's a red line. Oh, yeah, sure, Mr. Obama. Yeah. It's it's just by nature, you know, it's an attempt to cover up an inadequacy. So, uh, yeah, it is. And that's so, Joe Biden to the, also to the T. The whole yeah. corn pop saga and the tough man Joe, when a reporter asked him, 
that's stupid or no lie or bet you can bet on it. or I'm not kidding. Or, you know, when I was this and I was there and I was doing this, I'll take Donald Trump behind the gym and beat him up. That's all just verbiage that's poorly masked as insecurity. Hey, Victor, one other Jimmy Carter little thing, you know, he did have, although it didn't happen until closer to the election year, but he did have a, a fight on his hands with the aforementioned uh, Ted Kennedy. Um, there's no one other than I think Marianne Williamson, who who was one of the, you know, 900 candidates for president last year and is you know, not a politician announcing on the Democrat side. There's, there's no one yes, yet who I I may be mis- re- reading the wrong newspapers. No one seems to be making any signs of being the Ted Kennedy uh, to, to, of, of uh, 2024. You're not seeing anything yourself, are you? No, remember not. Remember he said, uh, I'll kick his ass. And then what happened to Ted Kennedy was he was the least gifted of the three. He was the most uh, dissolute. And that's saying a lot, given the lives of Bobby and JFK. But he was the most dissolute and had the least control of his growing appetites, Ted Kennedy. Right. But he was on that. And I remember this very clearly. And correct me if I'm wrong, if I've got the names wrong. But Roger Mudd had an interview with him and said, why correct. do you want to be president? And he just looked like a deer in the headlights. Yeah. And he was basically saying by his inability to ask that basic question of any candidate. Right. I, I don't know. I'm a Kennedy. I'm supposed to do this. If it hadn't been for Chappaquiddick, I would have been president. Yeah. But when he came in and then there were stories about the Carters, I think, promoted a lot. There were, Remember the whole Chappaquiddick story started to come back again? Mm-hmm. And, and that period that had been the news had been smothered, we learned even more gruesome details. 20 years or so post facto, that was pretty damning. And uh, he was a poor campaigner and he gave kind of a good swan song speech at a convention, you know. Yeah. And that, was, and that was the end of Ted Kennedy as a national candidate. Yeah. And Carter was ahead. People should remember that. Everybody, I've been dismissing him, but. In 1980, and correct me if I'm wrong, you go back to the polls in February, March, he's running ahead of Ronald Reagan four or five points. And the media doubled down on Reagan. They said, you know, he's a governor. He's lost two ties. He didn't, he didn't do well. And when he ran against Nixon in 68, he came back in 76, and Ford beat him out. He has no foreign policy experience. He's dangerous. Uh, he's just a Southern California creation of oil money in Hollywood. He's an actor. They, they had it down really tough on Reagan. And then all of a sudden, Reagan's, you know, tough policies. All of a sudden, in 1980, Carter's imploding economy and Reagan's one debate where he said, there you go again. Right. Uh, he he, you know, he, he just suddenly just surged. And the same thing happened, believe it or not, in 84. We were still dealing with the Carter legacy. And Paul Volcker had, I remember uh, going into the production credit office in Fresno, in uh, Kingsburg, California, and being told, well, Mr. Hansen, we've approved your loan. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful loan. It's 13%. And B of A was loaning at 15%. And that's what that was what Paul Volcker was trying to break inflation. And then Walter Mondale was ahead of Reagan in the poll. Right. And then all of a sudden, 
I think somewhere between April and October, the economy grew at a per annual rate of about 7%. Right. It's morning. It's morning in America. Yeah. Cut the tax cuts, the tax cuts yeah. kicked in the economy grew and all of the left uh, shrill stuff. Oh, this is the age of greed. and Everybody. And then he just yeah. wiped, wiped out Mondale as he had more so than he had Carter. Yeah. It shows you something that that democratic appeal to this is a racist, unfair country and the fat cats are oppressing everybody. That That's a, it's very effective. And when you have such a stark contrast between a gifted leader like Reagan and a mediocrity like Carter and a, and a nice mediocrity like Mondale and, and a good record that Reagan had, uh, it's still... You know, it's still surprising that uh, the left can do so well. Well, Victor, um, we're going to talk in a few minutes about Raul Dahl and what's been going on with uh, the uh, woke application to some of the more important and popular children's literature of of the last uh, half century. But before that, we have a sponsor today. Victor, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. Don't answer. Don't ask. Is it possible to extend lifespan and feel younger at the same time? Well, according to a Harvard scientist and Nobel Prize winning breakthrough, the answer is yeah, absolutely. How? By lengthening your telomeres. Your telomeres protect your DNA and play a critical role in the aging process. By the way, if you don't believe it, go look up telomeres. Go Google it. It's true. Um, But many of us struggle with shortening telomeres. And why is that? Because of stress, unhealthy food, obesity, probably booze and more. And that's why I recommend Youth Switch. And I do take Youth Switch. I'm even going to shake a bottle here. It is really a bottle of Youth Switch. Uh, Youth Switch is all natural, doctor approved and manufactured right here in America. Youth Switch contains a potent blend of adaptogens that promote healthier telomeres and longer lifespans. It boosts energy and can support regeneration of healthy organ systems. Now, you can try Youth Switch for yourself risk-free today, and you can also receive a free bottle of Ageless Brain, which I also take, and I'm going to shake that bottle too, and that comes as a bonus. It's a great product to help you improve focus, memory, and mood. You'll also receive four bonus eBooks to boost every aspect of your health and longevity. So go to youthswitchmd.com slash justnews to claim your supply of Youth Switch and all five bonus gifts. That's youthswitchmd.com slash justnews to order Youth Switch today. We thank Youth Switch for sponsoring the Victor Davis Hanson Podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. 
At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, um, Raul Dahl. I'm not biggest fan of his because he was married to, oh, what was the actress's Pat, name? Pat, Pat Patricia Neal. Patricia Neal, right? I love Patricia Neal. I and did he, too. She was so good in HUD as this long-suffering uh, woman that HUD kind of treated really terribly. The older woman. Yeah, she was in the Fountainhead. She was Fountainhead, terrific. She was really uh, good. She had an affair during the cre- uh, filming of that with Gary Cooper, and he had an cre- abortion. Yeah, and he broke her heart. Yeah, she, I should she, say something that's really obscene, but I go ahead. <laughs> I, I read a, a thing where she was asked to comment on Gary Cooper. It was either her or one of his many. And she said he is hung like a horse and he can go all night. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I know that my father told me that when I was about 20 because he loved <laughs> Gary Cooper. He can I only said, dream. I said, I, yeah, I said <laughs> I was watching High New with my dad. He said, that guy. The women loved him, Victor. He was hung like a horse and could go all night. And don't take it from me. How would I know? But he would, it was funny. It was really funny. I That's like the word. I really like Coop. <laughs> yeah, he was terrific. Terrific actor. Well, anyway, I, my, I, I, Raul Dahl kind of treated uh, uh, Patricia Neal uh, like crap, uh, especially after she had, she was, had a very famous. A stroke where she was yes. truly incapacitated. That was when she was like, I, I never figured that out. She was 40 something in her 40s. Was, right. And she was pregnant. And she had a stroke and everybody said she was she was had facial paralysis. She was all through. But then she lived for like 40 years. Right. And he divorced her, I think, as I recall. I think so. Yeah. But, and kind of mistreated her. But he did. But she, he didn't. He's, but a still, he's a Scandinavian. We all are. So oh, I'm. <laughs> he's a Norwegian. I think he was Norwegian from a Norwegian family that grew up in Britain. His parents wanted him to go to English school, so they stayed there. Oh. And when his dad died, I think he was pretty wealthy. His father was very wealthy. Grew up wealthy, and then his when his dad died, I just used to read. A, my kids liked his books, right? And I would. They were kind of dark, though. I mean, they were they were yeah. dash. Uh, and he wrote some of those uh, Alfred Hitchcock Tonight episodes, you know, I think even one or two. Uh, oh, I didn't Twilight. know that. Yeah, the Twilight Zone. Oh. But uh, he he made a lot of money. He inherited money, but he made a lot more money. He was really, I mean, incredible. I mean, just from uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which most people, if they haven't heard of it or read it, it's, you know, Willy Wonka. So yeah. just from that alone, it would fill, fill uh, bank coffers. I know. And he got very angry at that uh, film and disassociated himself and never sold another book during his lifetime. Well, and, was, but he was kind of, he was, I think what was his cachet was, as I said to Sammy, she mentioned it. He was a master stylist. If you look at how he wrote, it was Tolkien-esque. I mean, he really was a master of language, almost like Lewis Carroll. He made up words. And, and I said that to, to Sammy. And I think that's what was so shocking about these mental midgets that post facto would dare to change his prose because that was, besides his characterization and plot, 
that was one of his trademarks. That he, right. These people have no talent and they're going in there and changing fat and women and right. all the, this crazy stuff. And they're just, they want his money. They want to sell the stuff. And they don't, as I said, they don't have enough courage to back off and say, you know what? I find this language atrocious. So you, Random House, Puffin, or whoever, you take that. And we're gonna we're gonna give it to Hachette, or maybe they are Hachette. Hachette owns everything, but we're gonna give it to another publisher. You deal with. It. But no, they they don't do that. They wait till the guy's dead, and then they go on the latest fad because they think they're gonna increase sales, or they won't lose sales. Yeah, which brings up a larger question. I think everybody is, you know, I was at the airport. Um, and at a Bradley Foundation, Phil, you know, the, the philanthropy uh, board meeting, and I had four or five people came up and they all said the same thing with almost the same language. Are you Mr. Hansen? I said, yeah. And the only reason they wanted to know was this was what they wanted to know. Right. And they wanted to, it wasn't just me. They wanted, they, they asked it of everybody, apparently. When is this woke nuttiness going to end, do you think? Mm-hmm. When when are we going to get back? And I said, you know, I would say, well, we had COVID and then we had the crazy lockdown. And that was the incubator or the embryo for this latent virus, this politically correct stuff of the 90s. And it took off in that environment. And it's going to, but I, I, I'm getting the impression now when you and I talked about the Stanford, remember the, the harmful word list? Right. And I think in our former colleagues, uh, there's an article about the snitching aspect of it, that they were going to what rat out people who use the wrong words like American or something. Well, we I had that lined up for another podcast. But yes. We could bring that up now. This is okay. at, at Stanford University. Uh, yes. This has just emerged. Go ahead, Victor. You go <laughs> ahead. You go ahead, because you were the one that we're going that you I can't claim credit for it. And I'm there at Stanford. I knew about the word list. Right. Tell it. Tell our audience what they were doing about well, the well, enforcement a, aspect of it. Yeah. Let me just hit a story from National. I'll just read these first yeah. uh, three paragraphs. A group of Stanford University. And this is from National Review. And the writer is Jeff uh, Zamari. A group of Stanford University professors are pushing to end a system that allows students to anonymously report their peers for discrimination or bias. The inciting incident was a, quote, protected identity harm, end quote, report. Can you believe our colleges have these freaking systems? Filed to Stanford last month against a student who was photographed reading Mein Kampf. This reporting mechanism is Stanford's system to address incidents where a student or community member feels attacked due to their identity. Faculty members didn't even know the system existed until a report was published by Stanford student newspaper. I was stunned, said uh, Russell Berman, a professor of comparative literature. More than 75 professors have signed a petition to investigate freedom of speech and academic freedom at Stanford with a view to ending the bias reporting system. Victor, before you comment, and I wonder how many of those 75 professors were also people who signed up on, on things to attack you and Al Ferguson and Scott Atlas. Uh, we can I don't figure know. That out. <laughs> I don't know, but I know that uh, Russell Berman, who was a former, uh, I don't want, I want to be very careful about the title. I think he's sure. associate dean. But he's a wonderful person. He's at a Hoover fellow. He's a German professor. And he was a traditional 
classical liberal who over the years at Stanford of a distinguished career, he saw where this woke was going and he's been a very brave critic. And when Scott Atlas, I always bring this up, so I don't want to beat a dead horse, but when Scott Atlas was under fire, Russell, along with John Cochran, was about the only person that I know of, except, you know, Jay Bacharya and those guys, but non-medical person that spoke up on his behalf. So he's so he's he's been very brave. And some of those 75 people I know, and I've talked to some, and I won't, just one or two, and pretty much they say the following. And I think this is important for everybody here because we are losing these major universities. We're about to, remember, we were into affirmative action and we were into political correctness, but the force multiplier was the virus the lockdown, the George Floyd, the 120 days of unchecked rioting, looting, arson, and death. You put all of that souped stuff together and you get what we have now. And what one of them was saying was, if you are into the third year of repertory admissions and you are letting in people, as I said before in this podcast to you, Jack, that by your own standards did not meet the criterion that you established. Nobody put a gun to Stanford's head in 2000 to take an arbitrary year 16 that you wanted to admit people that had 1600 SAT combined scores or 4.4, but they did. It was very selective. So did Harvard. So did yet. That was their standards. Now, they were hypocritical, of course. They had some affirmative action. They had athletes. They had legacies. But they established their, and they were proud how they many people, they still are about rejecting. But then for them to take those very standards and to destroy them and say, you know what? They don't matter. They were racist. We didn't know what we were doing. We weren't inclusionary enough. Now we're now we understand. So we're going to be repertory. We're going to be compensatory. We're going to let people in. We're not going to. You know what? We're not going to even require the SAT. That is racist. So they've done this, Jack, for three years. And when you start to look at the so-called white minority admissions at these universities, Stanford, it's 26, 24, 22 percent. Well, did you see the new that, numbers just came out on that on Stanford? Yeah, I did. It They're is. Not, you were right, though. It is twenty two percent. It of is. The, and the, the, the and, class of twenty twenty six are white males. Uh, yes, and what they do is they count mixed race. Many people who are Latino or African American check mixed race, so that that doesn't look like they have a large, larger number of Latinos. But if you put the mixed race in with Latino black, it's huge. The percentages much larger than the percentages in the population. Then Asians, you know, they're so afraid to be sued, they are now allowing Asians to be somewhat overrepresented demographically, but still, in terms of uh, admit quality of the admittance application, uh, underrepresented. But my point is this, if you do this, then, then you have to make admission synonymous with graduation because... As one person said to me, I have two choices. I either water down the curriculum, so there's it's like a baby class, or, or I inflate the grades and I give people for C for 
F work, I give them C's. And for C work, I give them B's. And for B work, I give them A's. If the, and that's generous. And if I don't do that, I die on the altar of standards. If I have standards, then these snitches will go look at my grading patterns and think that I am systemically racist because a larger number of people, quote unquote, who are marginalized are not doing well in my class because I have, quote unquote, white heterosexual male privileged white rage standards. Right. And that's what's happening across the country. And so slowly, incrementally, insidiously, we're destroying the meritocracy of these flagship universities that we counted on for not just English professors or sociologists or environmental studies, but physicists, mathematicians, electrical engineers, computer engineers, geologists, those people, petroleum engineers. These are the top people. And when we start tampering with that, then, as we've said on earlier broadcasts, you get five near misses or you get derailed. Uh, right. You get Pete right. Buttigieg. So what is Pete? Why is Pete Buttigieg in what were her quali- What was his qualifications to be transportation? And and why would anybody be surprised that he's been an ungodly disaster? Because he was there for one reason. He was a sanctimonious, glib, gay man that couldn't shut up about it. Right. And that same thing with Deborah. Sammy and I went. We went through all of the cabinet members, and so when you do that. What you're, I think everybody has to realize that these institutions, the Pentagon, Stanford, Yale, it's not you out there listening that made the original standards. It was them. It was the Pentagon that said you had to be able to run this fast and lift this weights because we've determined over long experience in war that these physical requirements were necessary to protect people. Right. And now we, not you, are destroying those and saying it's racist to have those standards or it's sexist. And we, the Ivy League and Duke and Stanford, we set these standards. And we now are saying that they were terrible standards and they were not necessary all those years. See what I'm saying? It's a post-factual yeah. argument. They are saying, you know what? We didn't really train anybody that was any good because our standards that were so tough were bankrupt. That's why we got rid of them today. And they don't matter. Because we're going to turn out people and they're going to be just as good. And you're going to say, well, well, wait a minute. These people that you're graduating wouldn't have been admitted, much, right. less, much less graduated from your own university. Five years. Oh, well, yeah, and we were wrong. And uh, we overvalued the product and we unnecessarily created discriminatory standards. And so nobody is going to buy that argument and we're going to see a incremental but insidious portioning of the culture. I can see it everywhere. I don't, and it's not, I'm not just saying it's gender and race. It's everything. It's the attitude that there is no accountability and no standards. If you go, if you go to an airport and you fly five times a month, you're going to have one person where you're landing, you're ready to go for a connection. You'll see somebody in the sky bridge. that doesn't know what they're doing. I mean, they could not park that thing if the plane crashed into it. You know what I mean? They don't know how to yeah. do it. They don't know how to do it. I was at a, on a flight not too long ago, and the person who had the code to open up the sky bridge so people could get their uh, carry-on that had been courtesy checked, he, he couldn't do it. 
he could, they couldn't open the door. Yeah. Good luck with the connecting flight. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And nobody, or you'll see people with everybody's yelling on a late flight and you'll see the baggage handler. They're just talking in slow motion. And then you wonder, will this ever have consequences? Yeah. They'll, when you're, when they're pulling a jet into place to take, to take, go down the runway, it's going to hit a bus and injure five people. And that's lucky in LAX uh, two months ago. And so it, there's consequences and you can see it everywhere that yeah. this country is, uh, you can see it at the very top of the Pentagon. You can see it in the FBI. You can see it in the CIA. You can see it everywhere that ideology and gender and race are substituting for meritocracy. Right. And whenever you do that, you follow the Maoist or the commissariat Soviet model, and it, and it leads nowhere but to oblivion. And so what's yeah. so sad about this, we're taking this legacy of all these wonderful people who died on Okinawa, or died on Iwo Jima, who were blown up in a B-17 over Schweinfurt, or died at Bella Wood, or Chateau Thierry and World War or were killed at Gettysburg. All of that sacrifice was incremental to give us the lifestyle and this wonderful materially affluent opportunities we have. And then we're destroying it. And then we're making, we're not only destroying it, we are trashing and insulting, smearing and defaming the people who gave it to us in the most ingracious manner of any generation in history. Right. Well, Victor, while you were talking about um, the grades, I was thinking, okay, uh, getting into the college, meritocracy is is gone there. Getting a grade, everyone's going to get an A. But what about the situation where the where and this must get the most exquisite for a professor, where you're, you're approached by a student who's looking for a letter of recommendation to go to a graduate school. When you know they got an A, but they really should have gotten a D, and you're expected to write some glowing recommendation, you're you've got to you've got given the the uh, the tenor of what's going on on the campuses, you got to write that glowing recommendation, even though you know it's you a freaking lie. And that was an art form because I, I in my I think forty years at Cal State and Hoover, I've read hundreds of these letters. And for all the faults of the academic mindset, they're pretty clever because these letters are transparent by Freedom of Information Act. So if they got a dud on their hands, they write a very clever letter. They don't whitewash it until now. And these were the letters you get. Mr. Smith entered our Ph.D. program. He came uh, from a very fine undergraduate program. Our worries that he was ill-prepared in both Greek and Latin were somewhat relieved because of his uh, solid B work. I, it wouldn't be important. It wouldn't be necessary to mention that he didn't turn in three seminar papers because later he rectified that. And it goes on and on. You know what I mean? You, you, you describe how bad the guy is and then you immediately said it didn't matter if he was so bad, but right. you get, you get the bad across today. That's just, it's I'm not going to die on that altar. You know, I'm not right. going to write something bad about somebody who's and you can really see it when you see the illiterate composition skills of this generation or letters that you get or campus mail. 
or you see you see people on MSNBC or CNN or you know, they can't they can't put together coherent thoughts or you get people on the national stage like Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris it's and I'm not trying to say I'm not trying to defend the old white male competency because that was a corrupt system of who you knew and what class you were in all I'm saying is that the wokesters focused on the one weakness of the old system the old boy who you know help your friend and they right. emu- and they emulated it only they substituted race and gender and sexual orientation for contact and wealth or privilege and and it was really funny how they just said hey we have no objections that tommy smith grew up in Palos Verdes and his mom knew everybody in Hollywood and his dad was on the board of USC and they got this mediocrity in and pushed him into a big law firm when he got out. We have no problem with that, that system. We just won't like the idea that it's only for white guys. Mm -hmm. What we're going to do is we're going to get the government to come in and call it woke affirmative action diversity and use the same methodology to privilege somebody on criteria other than merit. And so it's 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 really sad that all these leftists and all these reformers just emulated the very system that they said uh created unfairness and discrimination and they're they're no different. Well Victor we have some political inf- um data to talk about some new polling in the uh the heat heating is that even a word hotening heating heating up the republican prime uh, 2024 republican primaries and we'll get your your thoughts on on this and if we have some time maybe we'll talk about elon musk or we might save that for another podcast but we'll get to this right after this important message Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'd like to remind our listeners that VictorHanson.com is a place you should be checking out regularly. Regularly, someday I'm going to get that word right. I need a little more ageless brain. Uh, but not only checking it out, but subscribing because Victor writes a tremendous amount of original material, exclusive material for VictorHanson.com. It's, they're called ultra articles, uh, in my estimation, the equivalent of two 
uh, significant books a year worth of copy content wisdom. So how do you do that? Subscribe. $5 will get you in the door. $50 for the year. That's victorhanson.com. So Victor, um, I'm looking at a Daily Mail story. I think it's out today or was out late yesterday. Headline, Ron DeSantis would win 2024 Republican primary between nine GOP rivals and would beat Trump by 24% in a head-to-head showdown. New poll of GOP voters reveals uh, in this, uh, let's see, who the heck is this from? I never heard of this polling firm, WPA Intelligence. There's a poll conducted February well, you, you, yes, you know everything. It's, I think it's a conservative poll that the left doesn't like. Okay. This is of a thousand Republican voters. Not sure if they were red, if they were likely voters, et cetera. But um, it's, uh, it, it's a significant. DeSantis, 40% of the vote. Trump, uh, 31. And then the rest of the pack, a few of them. Let's see. Uh, Haley, uh, Nikki Haley and Mike Pence are around 8%. Uh, Liz Cheney is in the race at 5%. Pompeo, uh, Rubio, Hogan, the former governor of uh, Maryland, and Tim Scott from South Carolina are all at 2 or 1%. Head-to-head, uh, head, yeah. Um, uh, the poll shows that, that DeSantis uh, beats Donald Trump handily. I'd like to say this poll was conducted before, and I think it might matter, Donald Trump, Great political move, my thought, and probably heartfelt, went to uh, East uh, Palestine to bring some some uh, relief to the people there and show some solidarity. Anyway, Victor, uh, you know, it's way, way off before Election Day, but uh, this looks uh, this poll looks impressive. Your thoughts? It does. And we've talked about it before, Jack. Donald Trump has charisma. He's got magnetism. People, as you saw, he was at his best in East Palestine. It was a, a coup, basically a triumph. It, it really revealed the poverty of the Bush Buttigieg stuff. And why doesn't he just do that? Why does he? Why doesn't he keep off to the social? Why doesn't he not make fun of Glenn Youngkin's name? Why does he not go after Mitch McConnell's wife? Why does he have to? Because that's reflected in the poll. And what he's dealing with, DeSantis, is the the midterm is the 2022 midterm where he outperformed everybody on the Republican ticket in every state nationwide. And so he's got this record. So what Donald Trump, if he was well advised, would be doing is he would be doing in East Palestine every day. He'd be down at the border and he'd be pointing to that wall and say, see this wall right here? They're not coming in where I, I did this for you. And then he's not doing any of that. I don't know why he's not, but he's not. But what is DeSantis doing that reflects his increase? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, he's handling down Donald Trump very well, Jack, because the more that Trump calls him desanctimonious, etc., he's magnanimous. He doesn't reply, and he knows that at some point, and you and I don't know where it is. He doesn't know yet, but at some point in the future, he's going to have to reply. Because Trump will intensify the attacks and he will look weak if he does not reply. But so far, uh, it, I think he's, I've been reading, I think you could collate his reaction to it as sort of 
if you know we learned anything from last November, it's we're successful when we unite Republicans. That's what I did. I got Dade County. I got Miami. I'm a uniter. I don't have time to attack another Republican. I don't know what Donald Trump is saying about me, but I don't have time to reply because I'm trying to build a majority coalition the way I did in Florida and then print that on the nation. That's a very good strategy to say that and that you're, you you don't have time. That's kind of like Ronald Reagan said, right? You know, we're on the same team. Let's not attack each other, even though, you know, he, he did. And then the other thing is he's got, you know, they're starting to have his campaign people, I think, are pretty good or, or emphasizing that Ron DeSantis is not of the billionaire class. He's not even the Joe Biden grifter class. His parents came out of what? Youngstown, Ohio or somewhere, you know, the Rust Belt. He's got Pennsylvania roots. Yes. Pennsylvania, Ohio border roots. And he's a middle class guy. And so a guy who's got a MAGA agenda from the middle class is pretty authentic. It's hard to say that he's sanctimonious. Right. And then the other thing is sign up. I think they're all doing what Nikki Haley is doing. And that is, you know, the left wants to look at the back. The left wants to replay disinformation. The left wants to replay collusion. The left wants to replay all these things. We're moving on. We've got an agenda. They don't have an agenda in the future. And they're failing in the present. So all they got is their anti-Trump stuff in the past, and they're going to beat it to death. They're going to do the Marlago raid. They're going to try to indict him in Georgia. We can't, we can't worry about that because we're younger and we're moving on beyond these old guys that are fighting. And, you know, at some point, I think DeSantis will probably, Jack, if he gets personal, he'll say something to praise Trump. He'll say, you know, hey, whatever you say about Donald Trump, he gave us four good years of governance. And they went after and they treated him very unfairly. And they tried to destroy a good person. But we don't have time to litigate that. That's Donald Trump's litigation. I can't do that because I cannot get angry at them. I can't fight with them. I got to stop them. And I have a plan to stop them. I'm not going to give you heat. I'm going to give you light. I'm not going to get mad. I'm going to get even. And that message that he's going to have a controlled burn, not an uncontrolled burn, and knows how to defeat them is a very effective way of of gaining in the polls and dealing with Trump. So it's basically... I'm a middle class guy and I can't, you know, I don't can't speak to very wealthy people that are attacking me for being on inauthentic because, you know, I'm not. And then, you know, look at my record as my electoral record and my record in Florida. And I'm not going to talk about the past. I'm not going to fight individual battles. That's for other people to do. I'm going to unite Republicans. And that is a very powerful message. And the only thing that I can see, Jack, that is going to get question on it's it's kind of like reagan in 68 as i said earlier in 76 they said reagan was a governor and he didn't do foreign policy well ron santos was a congressperson so he did but they're going to want to know one thing and then, did you see that wall street journal uh, article by a very insightful and we all uh, love kim strassel kim strassel yeah. yeah yeah she's wonderful but she wrote an article saying that And I think I want to be fair to what she was writing. She was saying essentially that she likes DeSantis, but 
focusing on all the blunders that the Obama-Biden people did to get Putin into Crimea, which are true, i.e. the hot mic soul march of 2012, tell Vladimir I'll be flexible if he'll give me space, that appeasement in Syria, all of that led to the erroneous idea that Putin would face no consequences ultimately. Short term, he didn't. So he went into Crimea and he went in to the Donbass and the border under Obama. And then Biden came in and humiliated us in Afghanistan and then said he wouldn't object to a minor offensive. And then the first week he said he'd get Zelensky a ride out. And DeSantis was very good pointing out that we wouldn't be here. But as Strassel was trying to say in this article, yes. And now what? And the alternatives are, are you going to go? Donald Trump said he would finish the thing in, what do you say, 24 hours? Yeah. And that implied that he might just tell Zelensky, screw you. And by the way, Zelensky's latest stuff today, demanding more and more and more and lecturing us about you'll destroy NATO if you don't give me. We've given him $112 billion with another three or four each month. So that's a bad idea to bite the hand, no matter how noble right. people are. But my point is that Strassel was trying to say that the country has to have a strong defense and deterrent. We're not going to be neocons. So you've got to find a position somewhere between the blank check Biden and the neo-isolationist Trump. And where is that? And he's going to have to articulate that because I think that's and I think he can do that, or a person in his position, because I'm not endorsing any candidate, can do that. Right. And I think that he can say, you know, that Ukraine has done the world a great favor at a great cost. And and that would be that they attrited the greatest military and, and humiliated it. And that is no small feat. And we, but, and then he has to ship to a humanitarian, you know, this, this is the worst European war since conflict since World War II. Right. It makes it makes the Yugoslavian Milosevic thing look like a picnic. There's been two hundred thousand dead on both sides and civilians. Three hundred thousand maybe wounded, and right. it's not over yet. So I think DeSantis needs to say, "This is a humanitarian. We're not going to fight this war to the last Ukrainian. We don't want these people to get killed for." We want to stop it. We want to stop it with honor. We want all of it to stop because it's destroying European civilization and it's barbaric. And we don't want another 50 to 100,000 dead because some pundit in Washington says it's in our long term interest to do this. Right. It may or may not be, but they're destroying Ukraine in the process, a modern nation of 40 million people. And so he needs to, to emphasize the humanity that he does not agree with Biden because nobody is talking about the death and destruction and the ruination of Crimea and what Biden, uh, Putin will do this year because he's going to continue. He's got 700,000 mobilized. So we don't need any more pundits telling us how incompetent, uh, terrible the Russian military is. You could say the same thing in 1941 from June 22nd all the way until oh December 1st. Exactly. But anybody who reads the campaign of 1941 and 42 or goes back to the Napoleonic understands what happens when the Russians screw everything up. They pour the men and the machinery and people rally behind them. 
And when they get 700,000 people there on the border and they're pushing, I'm not saying they're going to go to Kiev, but they're going to destroy and kill a lot of Ukrainians. Right. And so it's in, he needs to say, I think it's in the moral interest, you know, of the world, the U.S. to find a solution that stops the killing. Right. Uh, And, you know, that can be a third party talk where India or somebody comes in and says, you know what, let's have a, uh, let's return to the 2004, go back to the 2014 borders, not the 2013 yet, but just go, Russia goes back to the Donbass and they go back to the Crimea and we have a peace talk and we fortify and arm Ukraine to the teeth so it doesn't happen again. And then we adjudicate it. And I don't think Russia's ever, I don't think they're ever going to give back uh, Crimea, Russia, just give them the historical ties to that. And then if they press him, you know, that uh, he could also say, what's the alternative? If you sign on to the Zelensky agenda of getting every Russian out of every inch of Ukrainian soil to go back to 2013 when Obama screwed everything up. Uh, if you do that, you're going to have to do some preemptive, dangerous, offensive operations. You're going right. to have to take out the supply chain to the Crimea, not just one ship, but all of the Black Sea fleet, and not just a couple of depots, but continue ha- hitting Russian bomber bases air bases they've done that before stealthily and uh but victor that might not be a possible but if it were possible wouldn't wouldn't there be the price tag and just lives would be half a million more dead a million more dead that's what i'm saying that yeah absolutely so i think to sum up desantis needs to say that I know the geostrategic, you don't have to lecture me about the geostrategic, but I didn't destroy deterrence. I've already made that clear, but I'm not going to fight this war to the last Ukrainian and see a nation of 40 million people completely destroyed Right. when you can stop it through negotiations and get back to where we were before the Obama Biden people screwed it up. And I'm going to, that's my point. And I want to help them defend themselves but I'm not going to give them the wherewithal to fight an offensive war against Russia to get every Russian out because their interests are not identical with ours. And we have people watching this. And one of them is China. For all their verbiage and rhetoric, they like this going on. They like Russia bleeding. They like the United States emptying its arsenal. They like Europeans terrified and emptying their arsenal as they look on Taiwan. And they are saying to themselves, the longer this goes on, the more death and destruction, the more weapons, the more costs, the more people are going to get sick of stuff like this. And if we go into Taiwan in a year or two, these people will not be up to this again. We are because we haven't lost anything. And so uh, that's what I think that's the position that uh, that DeSantis right. is going to take because they're going to focus like Kim did more and more on foreign policy. And he needs to step up. And what I just said is correlating. It's not me. It's correlating things he said in fragments. It's been very good. But he needs to to systematize that into a coherent vision of how the United States should act. And uh, unfortunately for Zelensky, this celebrity has gone to his head. So he gets Sean Penn over there. He gets... uh, 
uh, a bunch of hawkish Congress people over there. He gets Lindsey Graham over there. He gets Boris over there, the ex prime yeah. minister. And, and well, Victor, if I'm and I'm no expert on anything in the world, but he it, he his government and in general, who whoever seems to run Ukraine, it is probably the most corrupt country. It was in Europe. Right. No, it was that just ask Hunter and Joe. Yeah. So you have this celebrity marinating. uh, And his wife is a a kind of a Vogue figure. So my point is, yes, I like him. Yes, I'm glad he stopped the Russians. We all are. We want we deplore what Putin did. But that's history. Now we've got to work with the reality. And the reality is this man has gone to his head that he's some type of messianic figure that's going to lead. He said the other day, I'm quoting him. We're not going to stop till we're in Red Square. Did you hear that? No, that's insane. And he said, when he's getting the most sophisticated tanks in the world, (laughs) the Leopards, the Challengers, and the Airborne, it's never enough for him. Yeah. And he wants F-16. So he wants a major war with Russia so that NATO and the United States are drawn in and put him under their nuclear umbrella. Let's be clear about it. And he thinks that the people in Washington and the bipartisan neoconservative establishment will allow that to happen. And you can't just throw the rug from out from under him and say, I, I, and in fairness to Donald Trump, he's not doing that. He just said, art is a deal. I'll go over there and negotiate. And maybe right. he will if he had that power. But what I'm saying is in the meantime, there is another position. And that's what DeSantis should embrace. And if he were to do that, uh, then he would strengthen his foreign policy fides and uh People like Kim Strassel, who I think might be, I don't know, I don't talk to her on politics, but might be sympathetic. I think that if I read between the lines in that op-ed, it was sort of, I want you to do this so that they don't gratuitously attack you. Right. And not having Ukraine. And that that's going to be for all the governors that haven't had, uh, I mean, Pompeo doesn't have that problem. Haiti doesn't have that problem. And Trump doesn't have that problem because they've dealt in foreign affairs and it doesn't matter what the the position is. But when they look at a governor, especially one who's, as you quoted that poll, maybe ahead in some polls, then they're going to put more and more. What are you going to do about Taiwan? What are you going to do about Ukraine? What are you? And he's going to he's going to. And they have to be very careful because. um There's going to be a lot of people attracted to the DeSantis. Because for good reasons and for the idea that he's winning and they right. want, they want to hitch their wagon to a winner. And there's going to be a lot of neoconservatives. And I say that I used to be sympathetic in Iraq and Afghanistan. I supported both of those interventions, even though that we made colossal mistakes. But this country at this point in its history is not capable of an optional expeditionary ground force or even major effort anymore. We've got right. we're just not. Not with the crumbling defense and woke military we have. Right. We've got to build it up again before we even consider that. And we shouldn't consider these ill thought out optional campaigns when we can be energy interfered. I mean, it sounds like that is a 15 or 20 year project. It seems yeah, like it is. <laughs> it is. But my point is he's going to be bombarded right. with the Bill Crystals, Max Boots, uh, all those guys that want back in. The Robert Kagan's, the, you know, those people. Right. And then he's going to have the, we don't want 
Zelensky's a crook. We don't want to give him anything. We hope Putin wins people on the way off on the other spectrum. Right. But between those polls, there's a lot of that's where the majority of Americans are. Yes, we helped you. Yes, we gave you $112 billion. Yes, we deplore Putin. Yes, he's a thug. But we are not going to give you the wherewithal that will ensure another three to four to 500,000 dead. We're going to give you enough to repel, but we're not going to subsidize and encourage and pay and help you direct a massive counteroffensive to get this what could be very quickly 700,000 Russians in your country out. We could right. we want you to negotiate once they get to the Donbass and the Crimea and go back to the 2014 where we were. And then both sides have, have suffered terribly for Putin's tragedy, his, his malicious attack. But that's where we are. And we're not going to risk World War III by subsidizing you to go to the Red Square. I'm sorry. Your interests yeah. are not identical with ours. Yeah. Because you'll be expecting us to subsidize the rebuilding of the country after this. Yeah. Well, what's the, what's the, what's the solution is to destroy the entire Ukraine and say, well, we won. Every right. Russian's gone. It's destroyed. We've got nine million refugees and we've got a half a million people dead and wounded and there's no GDP left and the country's infrastructure is in shambles. But there's no Russians now and who knows what there will be. And so and the other I think thing that really gets me angry is the Pentagon and the Biden administration are basically telling us, the American people, when you get a, a tiger and you wound him and he's in a cave where, and, or his lair and he's licking his wounds and he's growling at you, don't worry. He never lashes out. He's perfectly, perfectly rational. That's just a bunch of braggadocio. He would never jump out of that lair in desperation, in pain and try to attack you. Because he's in this lair. He's he's defeated. And I just don't believe that. I really don't. And that's what they want us to believe, that all that saber rattling is just a wounded tiger venting right. and, and howling at the moon. But he wouldn't dare jump out of his lair and do something stupid. I think he would if it gets down to it. Well, Victor, we've um, we're, anyway. we'll take up uh, we'll take up Elon Musk in California on another podcast because we're about out of time. Uh, we we uh, come to the end here where we thank our listeners and we, particularly those who uh, listen through iTunes and uh, Apple and who leave ratings. Again, everyone's leaving practically. Everyone's leaving five star uh, reviews. Thank you very much. Uh, some people write comments. And here's one, I think it's kind of on point to the conversation we've just had. It's a little lengthy, but it's it's titled Nostalgia. And it goes this uh, like this, Dr. Hansen, thanks to you and all those on your team who published this podcast. It's salt in the decay of our culture, and we need more. I enjoy your historical commentary, but especially the application to what's happening today in the West and America. I am a uh, USMA, that's West Point, uh, 2001 graduate, and your off commentary on Uncle Billy Sherman, a personal hero of mine, brings back the smell of Thayer Hall and the cold gray days 
of Castle Grayskull and military history class. I was in New York for my 20 year reunion. I'm a Texan, but held my breath long enough to come up for a reunion and revisited Uncle Billy's golden statue on the southeast corner yes. of Central Park. I've always wondered what he would say about the opulence of his monument there. Anyway, that visit reminded me of reading your books, Carnage and Culture and the Soul of Battle in the Hatch of My Abrams in Iraq in 2003. I only recount all this to communicate to you the impact your scholarship has had on my own life as a combat leader and now a businessman in America. I have immense gratitude for your contribution to our society. Thank you. Continue to press the attack till duty is done. Signed by CRZY5, which kind of looks like crazy five. Victor, that's quite a... Quite eloquent. He's a masterful prose stylist. Yeah. yeah but, no, it's... it's uh... Very moving. I always yes. try to, if, just so he knows that when I go to New York, I try to go look at that um, statue. And, and there's also one in Washington, D.C., and it's uh, quite moving. I'm, I was just relieved when they didn't um, right. uh, tear that down. Yeah. What, Give him time, what, Victor. <laughs> after people ask him finally after the war, after he marched through Georgia <laughs> and it's often singing marching through Georgia, but uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic and freeing 40,000 slaves and offering 40 acres and a mule when he got to the Carolinas, um, northern Georgia, whether he should or not, that's another question. But uh, they asked him after the war to glory, you know, to pontificate on and said, war, it's all hell, boys. Right. And that was very, that was, uh, that was very moving. Right. And uh, you've seen that statue, I think. Oh, yeah. It's on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 60th, right across from, well, it's at the at the corner of where Central Park is. Um, is that called, is that the, I don't know if it was called the Grand Army Plaza or something. I can't remember. Well, there is a Grand Army Plaza in Brooklyn, which is, uh, has a bit of a, uh, uh, an Arc de Triomphe uh, monument there, but um Let's call it that anyway, Victor. So it's a beautiful little spot in New York City, uh, kind of hectic. But he's uh, really, uh, I really like uh, that statue. That was at Augustus St. Gaudens, that great American, I think that was his name, statue, you know, architect and uh, sculptor and right. bronze caster. And I know that in Boston, there's that famous one of the guy in glory, Robert Gould, you know, that led the black troops at the crater. There's a he right. There's a, a bus. Yeah, that's in. Uh, I think it's in the State House building. Yeah, yeah. I saw, I've seen that. And then he did. Uh, gosh, he did one of. Uh, I don't know where. Well, Saint Gordon's also designed coins. I mean, he's just one of the the, the great artists of America. Just yeah, he wonderful. was. He's just yeah. wonderful. And that, the idea that we had people, whatever you think about the ideology, you had people who were so gifted in sculpture and. And art, and then we had these thugs that just went in the middle of the night and destroyed them. I mean, destroying a statue of uh, Longstreet. I'm no yeah. fan necessarily of the ideology of Stonewall Jackson. He was a mathematics instructor at the VMI, Virginia Military Institute. I think they just, I just want to finish with, I think they just got a crane and lifted a statue out, Jack. 
Yes. Yeah. I think the new African-American, very accomplished. I think he's a lieutenant general. He's a graduate of the school himself. Graduate school. And he's got sort of a woke agenda. And they took that statue out. When I visited and spoke there, Josiah Bunning used to be the superintendent there. They would blow the cannon off, you know, in the morning. And gosh, it's uh, the past is the past. And the idea in the present, you're going to go back and change it to control the future is a very scary idea. It doesn't, a, have a, doesn't have well, a very good, doesn't have a very good pedigree. Should, everybody should it's a very Soviet and it was with the basis of yeah. 1984. Yeah, absolutely. So, ministry of truth, right? I'll sign off with that kind of bleak thought. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks, Victor, for everything. Thanks, folks, for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thank you. Thank you.